Hello, and welcome to this Art Dirt podcast, a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. I'm Brandon Zeck. I'm Christina Reese. And we're going to talk about a very topical topic mm-hmm. uh, this week. On uh, Saturday, maybe a- about a week and a day ago from when you're hearing this podcast, um, Michael Galbraith, who is half of the duo The Art Guys, Uh, died in Houston. Um, If you're not familiar with the art guys, just a quick, (laughs) it's it's hard to do a quick (laughs) briefer um, about who they are and what they did and what they, (laughs) what their career kind of culminated as, but. And how important they are to Houston and to Texas and Mm -hmm. beyond, really, actually. Mm -hmm. The art guys uh, was comprised of Michael Galbraith and his longtime collaborator Jack Massing. And uh, Jack actually kind of initiated the partnership when he approached Michael when they were both graduate students at the University of Houston. Um, And Jack brought along two paint cans and they each dipped their hands in the paint cans and shook hands, creating an abstract action painting, (laughs) as it were. Performance. Uh, mm -hmm. And Uh, Jack was like, well, I guess we're the art guys now. This was in 1983. The art guys agree on a painting is what it was called. Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning of a 30 plus year collaboration where... Incredibly fruitful, prolific, uh, just rich collaboration. I mean, everything from performances to public art to uh, situations to happenings to drawings to sculptures, they truly were, (laughs) if you want to take the term multidisciplinary, which I don't know how Michael would feel about, (laughs) they, they truly embodied that in their creative output. Yeah, and you know, and some of this uh, kind of thing, this highly conceptual, rigorous, and also we'll get to the humor part in a minute, part of that um, was new to, I mean, it was it was in the zeitgeist, I guess. I don't really like using that word, but in terms of like really bringing it to Texas and presenting it uh, in a cohesive and coherent and really um, uh, realized way, to Houston and beyond was was um, a big part of the evolution of Houston's art scene. I think that one of the reasons that Houston's art scene is as strong as it is, and I think it's the strongest one in Texas, um, is partly uh, you know because of the art guys. Yeah, and there's there's a disclosure that I feel always ends up happening on Glass Tire whenever we talk about the art guys. So we'll go ahead and get that out of the way. Also, um, Michael uh, was the husband of Glass Tire's founder, Rainy Knudsen. Um, so, you know, the art guys were covered on glass tires sometimes. Not as much as they would have been otherwise. I, I think that's truly likely. Um, and also Michael was a, an important figure in helping kind of found the idea of glass tire. Um, in an obituary we wrote about Michael, that Christina, that you wrote about Michael uh, this week, Rainey says that Michael was the... Uh, Seed of inspiration mm-hmm, was the term that she used. Mm-hmm for uh, establishing Glass Tire as an online publication. This kind of falls in line with the fact that Michael and the art guys um, were always definitely looking towards the future and looking towards what technology would kind of bring to us. So I feel that is one of the reasons that Glass Tire is an online-only publication and is and has been for its entire life, is because Yeah, nearly 20 years, yeah. Yeah, because Michael kind of saw the technology coming at us. 
Um, he also came up with the name. Mm-hmm, because he was a lifelong fan of Robert Rauschenberg, as many diehard <laughs> Texas artists are. Yes. Uh, you wouldn't dare say something bad or remiss <laughs> about Robert Rauschenberg in front of Michael, uh, lest you be struck down. Or us. <laughs> or us, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so the glass tire, uh, the name of glass tire is, is named after Rauschenberg's uh, cast glass tires, um, some sculptures that he made a little bit later in his career. But I, you know, I want to I want to say that that prescience that you're talking about um, of them just kind of knowing what was coming down the pike and responding to it and putting things out there, I think I think in some ways I, it benefited Houston enormously in opening up uh, new and emerging artists' minds about what art could be. Um, and it was also very much of a piece with what was going on in the rest of the the international art world. Um, I think that they're part of that that canon, frankly. And I wanted to emphasize that when I was writing about them. For me, um, one of the, you know this has been a really sad week, and I think it's still a sad time in Houston. I think everyone's I think the people who knew him and knew the work will be grieving for a long time. But I really got to delve into the work over the weekend when I was writing that piece. And Saturday and Sunday were just a deep dive into their archives in a way that I never had before. And it's not that I didn't already like the art guys, and it's not that I didn't already like and love Michael Galbraith. He's a friend and. Uh, but while really getting into some of this stuff and looking at some of the earliest work as well as watching some of the videos, I mean, they really documented their work extremely well. And, um, you know, I'm that much more impressed. I mean, it just makes me that much more sad. So when I was kind of first coming onto the scene and learning about some of these Texas artists, I used Glass Tire as a resource to do that. Um, and I, I don't know how I learned about the art guys. Um, and I, I really don't know how they kind of came into my world or how I got a bunch of exposure because it's not like they were continuously having huge exhibitions in Houston. They would always pop up now and then, but it was uh, at least towards the later part of their career it was kind of in non-art spaces or in a digital realm. Uh, but this was long before I knew Rainey, before I worked for Glass Tire. Um, I became a big fan, and it's because they documented their work so well and because they had uh, an extensive um, kind of presence throughout everything that they did that I started to really know what they were doing and pick up on what they were doing. I was also able to just educate myself on their entire back catalog because of all of those things also. I feel like at this point I might know their work best out of any Texas artist just Mm. because they did such a good job with it. And because I frankly liked it so much, it had a sense of humor that really appealed to me that no other art that I was seeing at the time did. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wrote a piece about Michael and the art guys' way of working, and I said this in there, but I didn't know that art could be funny. Mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't know that art could literally make you laugh out loud or that art could be predictive. Or, you know, I knew about surrealism, but I didn't know art could be truly absurdist until I saw uh, the art guys' work. And this week, uh, when a few people were talking about Michael and talking about the art guys and how they impacted them, I saw a number of people say the exact same thing. So I know this this feeling wasn't singular to my experience. The reason I think that, and as we're looking at their website, even now as we've got a couple of pictures pulled up and we're laughing out loud, you know, we're starting the recording and we're looking at them mowing the lawn at, at the cam, or looking at them unable to pull apart a bridge, uh, two men can't pull this thing apart. You know, the humor was a huge hallmark in their work and it ran throughout, but 
uh, it wouldn't have landed as well as it did if there wasn't. And I wrote this, like, I mean, there was so much rigor behind it and philosophical kind of um, grounding in it. And, and I think, um, like great comedy, there was something dark and there was something sublime in it. And I think that's one of the reasons that it feels uh, still quite timeless. I mean, I still look at these pieces from the, the 80s, and, um, or the documentation from pieces in the 80s, and I think they're still absolutely terrific, really strong. It's really strong. You know, that kind of butts up against the idea that a lot of really good art kind of is of or is hyper-connected to its time and how you have to remember the context. A lot of their art did, did that too. Sure. Um, and still fits very squarely within that. However, a lot of their art transcends it in a really interesting way. Like, Christina, when you were talking earlier, right before we started recording, about the, the two men can't pull it apart piece. Right. You said the title of the piece, and even though I don't think I've ever seen that image, I knew exactly what it was going to be. Um, and, you know, that could be the fact that I know their work and I kind of know their aesthetic a little bit and then I could just picture an image of Jack and Mike trying to pull something apart that would be impossible to pull apart. But, I mean, it just kind of has this timelessness that that piece could have been created by Bruce Nauman in the um, 70s or it could be created by, like, a young artist today and it would kind of still resonate either mm -hmm. way as long as they have the right humor and the right approach to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think people would really respond to it and respond to the the, the humor in it. Um, I was going to say, you know, looking at these pictures of two grown men can't pull it apart in 1989. They're in Houston. They're trying to pull apart a fire hydrant, a dumpster, and a bridge. Um, but it's Houston, and Houston is very much a part of who and what they are and their identity, and I, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, one of my, I think one of my still favorite works that they uh, have ever done that I saw at like an Art Guys art fair, I think that they had in 2013, um, was this idea for a sculpture or idea for a performance or, you know, they, they always had 101 of something, 101 <laughs> ideas for this or 101 <laughs> public sculptures or 101, that kind of was there their number and their mode of working. Just thinking of as many ideas as possible, and some of them may be horrible and some of them may be amazing, mm -hmm. but normally they were all uh, rather on the mark. But um, the idea of uh, cars lining up along the Houston 610 loop and being bumper to bumper and then going around the loop until all of the cars ran out of gas. <laughs> and you know, the idea that all of the cars could run out of gas at the, exactly the same time is absurd and the idea that then you would be able to do anything with that is absurd but having that as a performance or having that as a sculpture is the most it's the most houston oil gas car culture car culture centric thing i had ever seen and it's and it's actually and it's kind of dark i mean they could get pretty dark we were watching uh a clip from a performance what year was that that they did the the joke one yeah so they did uh in 2013 as part of their 30th anniversary they did a uh they did an event every month for the 12 months of the year but in I think it was July, they did a performance at the Houston Bar and Performance Venue Natsuo, that's Houston spelled backwards, um, and it was called Never Not Funny, and it was eight hours of them telling a guy walks into a bar jokes. Right. And uh, I actually, I think this was before I had met Michael, but I found out about this and went to it, and they, they started at four when the bar opened, 
and there were like I was one of two people in there and they started with these jokes and you know they started simple and they would alternate back and forth Jack would tell one then Mike would tell one and then after about an hour and a half I think once they had kind of got the beginning of the mm-hmm. <laughs> the beginning of the the night out of their system they started to really open up their jokes and get oddly philosophical and complex and then you know the other person telling a joke was also the other person's turn to rest so jack would tell a five minute joke and then michael would get up and tell a five minute joke and then jack would get up and tell a 30 second joke and mike would just be like oh oh oh, man So I actually left in the middle of this event. You know, it started at 4. I left probably around 7, 7.30 to go to dinner. And I got back around, I don't know, 10? And it had just gone off the rails. Oh, I'm sure. It had devolved. Like, the the lights and, like, the disco ball were on. Mike was wearing a lampshade on Uh his head. uh People were heckling. People were getting up on stage with them, uh, unwelcomed. It was I this think, yeah, all-out in, surrealist. Yes, endurance was a, a big, a big uh, touchstone for them, and the, and actually, eight hours was a really short thing for them mm-hmm. compared to a lot of their pieces that went on for much, much, much longer. But I think it's in that, you know, drawing out uh, what should just—it's just a sense of time getting strung out so bizarrely, and things start to unfold and happen. And the piece that we, and the the clip, the clip that we were watching. Michael is down in the audience, and he's really, conf- he's telling jokes, but he's really getting in people's faces. He's being very confrontational. It's just six minutes of him saying and physically demonstrating the different ways that people could walk into a bar. But it's interestingly aggressive. Yes. And I, you don't necessarily think of the art guys as being really aggressive guys or whatever, but that's where some of the nihilism comes in, and I really want to... I want to stress that, you know, the complexity of their work and of Michael's brain and what he was capable of is all, it's really part of why I think we're all still reeling from his death. I mean, this resonates, this work really resonates, and it went to a lot of different places in terms of um, what art can achieve. Um, I... I wish that I had seen that. I wish that I had seen it. I mean, I just didn't live in Houston. I wasn't in Houston during most of this. I didn't, I wasn't really aware of them until probably the mid-90s. And I know that the first time I really saw their objects was in Dallas uh, in the mid to late 90s. And that, that was their sculptures. These were sculptures that were for sale at Barry Whistler Gallery. So again, you know, for me, um, getting to really dive into their history has been, it's been quite a week, actually. I want to get your thoughts on, um, so talking about how Houston kind of is the, the subject matter of so much of their work because they spent their lives here uh, and because they spent their formative years here too. I want to know what you think about their work and their kind of total holistic output kind of mirroring Houston in the sense of, in, in the no zoning kind of wild west sense of the city. Mm. Because while I know uh, just minutes ago I said they have a little bit of a recognizable aesthetic and a way of working. At the same time, their ideas were just always all over the place because they were always coming up with something new. It almost felt like they were always trying to top themselves. Well, it's what you've been saying and what's in what's in your essay, which by the time you guys can hear this art dirt will be published. But 
um, Michael Galbraith paid attention to everything. They were responsive to Houston, and Houston is a very unusual city. I mean, there's no other city in Texas that has no zoning laws, and um, they took advantage of it. I mean, they were really smart about it, too. I think that, you know, I, I, who is it? Is it maybe Jeremy Strick of the Nasher who's said to me several times, you know, it only really takes one person to create a whole scene or a whole movement. You know, I think Houston was um, not so much lucky, but the, pe the artists who were coming up through the 80s, they found each other, they encouraged each other, they supported each other, they egged each other on. Nestor and Jim, I, you know. Um, Nestor Topchi and Jim Pertle. Yeah, who, you know, all these, and the Commerce Street Warehouse crew and all of this, I'm learning all of this. Collision Helped is a book that, you know, that, that we talked about a lot last year when it came out, but um, still learning the history of it. But still, I just think that as a cornerstone of the ideas and attitudes that helped inform new generations of artists coming up through Houston, I think the art guys were absolutely uh, crucial. And can you talk about how other artists here have been influenced by them? Yeah, so there are a number of artists that have either done derivative projects or reinterpreted their projects. Um, so in late 2014, early 2015, Art League Houston presented The Black Guys, which was uh, the collaborative Robert Hodge and Philip Pyle II, reinterpreting some art guys' performances and also doing some uh, performances of their own. So they interpreted a performance where the art guys basically had themselves on a buffet and their heads, you know, were on the table and they were kind of talking and responding to everyone that was uh, getting food from the buffet around them. Uh, and the black guys reinterpreted it. Um, and you got to understand that these two guys, uh, Robert and Philip, are, you know, they're by this time they're prominent artists in Houston, you mm -hmm. know, very much so. So it's not even just like young people and students, it's even some of the more, you know, notable artists of Houston are, we're still um, calling back to our guys' work. Mm -hmm. uh, they also did a, a new performance where they boxed the art guys. And of course there was a big boxing ring set up and it was this whole thing. And then, you know, the boxing match begins and they bring out tape and bubble wrap and they, <laughs> the black guys put the, art guys in boxes and then dolly them out of the arena. That's nice. Um, with Michael just shouting, is that all you got? <laughs> um, oh. <or laughs> just yeah. continuously. Um, also, Carrie Marie Schneider reinterpreted Michael's human tour and kind of breathed a little, a little bit of new life into this project and retraced uh, the human tour route that he had, that Michael had um, formed back in 82, Yeah, it was ongoing. Uh, mm -hmm. I've got it here. Um, the Human Tour was a Michael Galbraith piece, and we should talk about Michael um, as a solo artist as well. Uh, he was always, I mean, he was full of ideas. He was absolutely exploding with ideas, and he's got his own website, um, which is uh, fairly thorough, but the Human Tour was his, and it was ongoing. It started in the 80s, and it was a way for him to engage with Houston on foot. He wanted to see everything. It's, again, it's kind of back to this idea of is of perceiving everything, of seeing everything. Um, you want to talk about the Nauman piece and his teaching and putting that out there for his students? Yeah, so um, there, I, I was in a course that Michael taught uh, in 2015. Um, and Michael, it was kind of odd. In the course, he talked about how he wasn't ever really going to be a professor, how he didn't want to teach, but it almost... <laughs> 
seemed like he was ready at this point. I, I'm not sure exactly his thought process. It's so funny because this man, I mean, he's a great artist, but I mean, I, I, I would think that he would be an extraordinary teacher. Yes, in his own way. <laughs> There's no, I, you know, I was going back and looking at notes from that course, and there are very few on most days <laughs> because it was just all conversation, and it was all this kind of wider idea of looking at the world in different ways or looking at the world in a larger way. Um, he would begin every course with the Bruce Nauman piece, Pay Attention. It's a lithograph that... Um, is reversed because it's a lithograph and it says pay attention motherfuckers and i it's a I, great piece yeah and i was on the phone with um one of his cohorts uh michael was recently teaching at sam houston state university and i asked them if he began every class at sam houston with that piece also and they said yes yes so every day he would say that and like slap the board and yeah, this is his worldview. It was his motto. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and it and it worked. So I mean, the human tour was about that. It was about getting getting out of your car, and and you and you were talking about how when you were asking him what to see in New York City, he was like, just be on foot. Don't do it in a car. Do not go into the subway. Just stay on foot and look around and just experience New York City. Take everything in. And this is one of the reasons that the art guys and Michael Galbraith as a solo artist as well were able to make such extraordinary art as they were just paying attention to everything. And Houston, luckily, throws, up, a lot to pay attention to. throws up a lot of stuff to pay attention to. You know, I'm sort of new here. I've been, I've been based here for a few months now. And... Um, I, you know, granted I come from Dallas and there are a lot of similarities between the two cities, but my gosh, I mean, there is, this is a pretty rich and textured place. One of my, uh, one of my favorite kind of later projects that the art guys were doing, um, and you can argue that they weren't doing this or weren't doing anything at all, but was that they would just put out, um, a, they would take a photo of something that they saw uh, and post it to their website and it would be their new situation sculpture <laughs> and it would be like a I don't know a telephone pole that had fallen down or a thing hanging from a tree or you know something in the little triangle of road where no one ever drives and it would it would be their new sculpture and it was an absurdist thing they didn't do anything mm -hmm. they took a photo of it and put out a press release mm -hmm. and it was just stuck a flag in it yeah and it was just hilarious yeah and it was Exactly, and it, they're it, it almost a, mocking themselves at that point. You know, it's. It, it, I think by the time they broke up, or supposedly broke up, that it in itself was a piece. What year was that? Twenty sixteen. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that was that was a piece. Uh, it was a work, um, and they announced their the dissolution of their partnership, which actually didn't quite quite happen. Away. But I think at the moment they they sort of meant it, and uh, and it was worth couching it as a work of art. Why not? Um, but I I just I feel like m maybe they had reached a point where they're looking around at the art world and things that, and developments in the art world, the art market, the international art scene, what people were were paying attention to or what had started to seem important. My guess is they were. I don't know if they just, it's not as though their time was over, it's just that they needed to probably recalibrate or felt like they needed to recalibrate. Um, and I think we're in some ways gearing up to do it uh, when Michael died, unfortunately. I think that by just taking things that were already out there and calling it their own, it was, it was a very quick, 
and fun take on their own. On their own work? Yeah, on their own history. And also a way to just keep some things getting out there, you know? Keep output out in the world one way or the other while they figured out what they were going to do next as, as individuals and as collaborators. I, you know, one thing that I, he was such a good conversationalist. He was such a pleasure to talk to about anything. He could talk about anything and he was interested in everything. And he was a, he was a very sort of gentle conversationalist, but he could get angry. You know, things pissed him off. I thought that was interesting to, to see him. And I'm not talking about interpersonal stuff. I'm talking about the world could make him angry. It was interesting to see how he would get angry and how he would approach that in conversation. Like how assertive would he be? How worked up would he let himself get over it? Um, and it was a side of him that I think, I, I, I don't, again, I don't think that everything the art guys did was fun and kind and gentle. I think that there could be some nihilism and some anger behind some of the work. And again, it's one of the things that makes oh, yeah. it very complicated and very complex. And I think it keeps it feeling resonant. But I, you know, I would, I saw some art shows with him and I, and I would walk out of them and he would just, there would practically be steam coming out of his ears. You know, it's not that he wasn't discriminating. He certainly was. Mm -hmm. So I, I think one of the ways that we can think about the art guys being a little bit ahead of things is that in 2007, uh, they debuted a piece that is hyper relevant now, mm -hmm. especially in Michael's death, mm -hmm. um, but uh, also relevant in an age where we kind of look at the personal commodity and where, you know, uh, owning something or owning like an endorsement has become like even more a part of our culture. And also relevant to this is the way that art criticism has steered so fully into art biography. You know, a lot of art criticism now is like, Art critics often feel almost obligated to or also maybe interested in doing the biographical details of an artist's life in order to, I don't know, justify or explain why the artwork is the way that it is. It's not my favorite direction. I think they're poking fun of that, but go ahead. And sometimes, sometimes on that regard, sometimes the bio is important in the artwork and sometimes it isn't, but it's very rare that the bio is exactly the artwork. <laughs> that the artist is the artwork. And Forever Yours is a piece that contains, uh, it's, it's two busts of uh, each of Mike and of Jack, and the busts are urns. So For each, cremated remains, yes. Mm -hmm, each artist's cremated remains is going to be stored in their busts. So the idea is that you can buy the art guys. They've done pieces like this in the past. Um, for example, they uh, had their name for sale. So you could buy all legal right mm -hmm. to, and trademark uh, to their logo mm -hmm. and to their name. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, I guess the idea if someone would have done that would have been they would have had to have changed their name. They've had, they, they've had a few projects like this. I mean, but Forever Yours is, no matter if they want it to be or not, it will be their final artwork. Well, I think it speaks to their integrity. I mean, there was tremendous, there's a tremendous integrity behind even this work. I talked to Rainey and I said, is this work still for sale? And she said, yes, it is. Uh, you know, in a way of upholding his legacy as well. Yeah, that's an actual piece. It's a real piece. He is for sale. I'm not telling anyone to buy him or not buy him. I'm just saying it continues on. The work continues on. 
So we've uh, we've published an obituary and uh, we've published an essay and now we have this art dirt and uh, and this is just kind of a good glimpse into the mind of uh, the Glass Tire office uh, this week. He's just still very much on our mind and will continue to be on our mind. And the art guys have always been all of our minds. I know they're mm -hmm. they're honestly some of my favorite artists, not just in Texas but some of my favorite artists. Period. So this impacts I, I know just personally me on a on a certain level right right uh, and I think Houston is grieving and I think uh, and I know for a fact that I have friends and colleagues and peers in Dallas who've been getting in touch with me all week long um, I think this has been upsetting news for a, a lot of people he was 63 years old uh, he went too young that's what I'm saying and he will be missed and with that, we are going to leave you. Uh, please, obviously, feel free to look at their websites at Michael Galbraith's solo site as well as the Art Guys website. And uh, hug the people you love because you've got them with you now. Uh, and if you haven't looked at the Art Guys website, truly, truly, <laughs> before I knew anything about them, I was looking at their website and loving it because there is so much to dig through. It's an amazing, it's an amazing way to experience their art you need to look at the Art Guys website. You need to take 20 minutes and really poke around it because there's nooks and crannies of it that aren't immediately in sight that are worth finding. And you know what? It's cathartic. It's super cathartic to look at their site because you will find yourself laughing out loud over and over and over again, which is a gift. It's a tremendous gift after a death like this to be able to really laugh at... Uh, what he did and what they've done and his legacy and you're laughing along with him and it's a beautiful feeling and um, that's it. With that, <laughs> go look at some art. Go see things, pay attention motherfuckers and go see some art. <laughs> <laughs>